This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here today. On this program, as some of you will know, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive. He or she reads it and we discuss it. And then we ask the poet to read one of his or her own poems that's been published in the magazine. I'm thrilled to say that my guest today is Billy Collins. Billy Collins, who among so many distinctions... Uh, served as the United States Poet Laureate from 2001 to 2003. Welcome, Billy Collins. Good to be here, Paul. Now, the poem you've chosen to read is Sea Dog by Eamon Grennan. It's a poem, I'm just looking at it as it appeared in uh, the May 16, 1988 issue of the magazine in its, its old livery, as it were, its old typeface. And uh, it looks like a whole other magazine somehow from the one we have today. It looks like something was made by kids, which is a wonderful thing, I'm certain. But in any case, Sea Dog by Eamon Grennan. What drew you to this? Well, it's a poem that starts out with uh, the discovery of a, a cadaver on the beach, not to give too much away. But um, that's not a typical beginning for any poem, let alone an Eamon Grennan poem. And something about this that is a feature of, I think, all poems I tend to like is that the poem travels. The poem starts in one place, ends up in a spectacularly different place, and it finds its way there. It's not just rushing there. It's not just rushing ahead of itself, nor is the ending a kind of tacked-on affair. Here's a big chord to end on. You know, teaching poetry for so long in university... I was uh, guilty, as so many others are, of, of emphasizing interpretation to the exclusion of a lot of other pleasures or aspects of poetry. And I realized at some point that when I'm writing poetry, I don't think about any of that stuff. I would never stop, nor would you, I don't think, and say in the middle of the poem, what's the theme here? Those study questions never would occur to me. What I'm thinking about when I'm writing is usually getting the poem forward, you know, pushing it line by line, stanza by stanza, and getting a sense of momentum, of forward roll, getting the thing going. And then once it starts moving, like a boy with a hoop, you know, an old uh, school boy with a hoop, once it starts rolling, then I feel like I'm on board, you know, and we're, we're going somewhere. And then the ending of the poem, and that's one of the big questions students have is, I mean, how how do you know when the poem is over? Well, if the poem is going somewhere, it's easy to find that out because you arrive somewhere. You know, if, if the poem is just watercoloring and it's not pointed in any direction, then I, I wouldn't know how to answer that question. So I tried to bring into the classroom 
more of a consciousness of what I was doing as a poet. So instead of asking, what's the theme? What does this mean? The idea was, how does the poem go? Old John Chiardi posed that question. How does a poem mean instead of what it means? You know, one of the issues that I wonder about sometimes is the possibility that we accept too readily a point of arrival for the poem. Isn't one of the risks that we might end too soon or take one particular stop on the line or whatever metaphor we want to use and feel, well, actually, it could or should end here. And uh, the question, I suppose, always is, well, actually, if we went a little bit further, might it not do more? I usually don't have that trouble, at least these days, in that I know the ending is the ending. When I have a sense that I don't want to say any more and you don't want to hear any more, but also, I recognize its arrival because it is an experience of discovery. I mean, Sea Dog's a great example. This is a rather amazing, almost a visionary discovery at the end of the poem. So at that point, when the ending of the poem is discovered, it seems like the entire poem has been written with the sole purpose of getting there. And it's really the, the discovery of this little chunk at the end of the poem that gives the poem its reason for being. And the poem is then seen as a kind of pathway to its own ending. Let's talk about the beginning for a moment. The title, of course, would be the beginning of the poem. Sea Dog, in many ways, of course, conjures up a particular image that those of us who are familiar with the works of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, Treasure Island in particular, will have an immediate response to those two words in that order. Yeah, I mean, it has it resonates in naval history as these sea dog pirates, right? That's right. And barely have we got our heads around <laughs> that idea that we actually must withdraw a little bit, retreat a little bit from it. And we discover, in fact, that actually it's not a pirate, but a dog. A dog, a sea dog. The title gives us basically an irrelevant association, which we then have to discard. In a strange way, do you feel that that actually might prepare us for the the fact that in some sense we have to, at the end, if not entirely discard the poem, somewhat discard what we've had up until then? Well, the the ending, and this is, (laughs) we're, we're kind of teasing people here, this famous ending, it sets the rest of the poem on fire in a way. I'm not saying the poem is a setup for it. I think the poem is a legitimate path toward this conclusion, Mm -hmm. if you can put so logical a word on the ending there. Look, I think we'd better hear it. Yes. (laughs) People listening wondering, what are they talking about? Or they've stopped listening altogether. Sea Dog. The sea has scrubbed him clean as a deal table, picked over, plucked hairless, drawn tight as a drum, an envelope of tallow, jutting with ribcage, hips, assorted bones. The once precise pads of his feet are buttons of bleached wood in a ring of stubble. The skull, bonneted, gap-toothed, tapering, trimly to a call of wrinkles, wears an air faintly human, almost ancestral. Now the tide falls back in whispers, leaving the two of us alone a moment together, trying to take in what I see I see the lie bright parchment skin, scabbed black by a rack of flies, 
that rise up, a humming chorus at my approach, settle again when I stop to stare. These must be the finishing touch, I think, till I see round the naked neck bone a tightly knotted twist of rope, a frayed noose that hung him up or held him under till the snapping and jerking stopped. Such a neat knot. Someone knelt safely down to do it, pushing those soft ears back with familiar fingers. The drag end, now a seaweed tangle around legs, stretched against their last leash. And nothing more to this sad sack of bones, these poor, enduring remains in their own body bag, nothing more. Death's head here holds its own peace, beyond the racket world of feel and fragrance, where the live dog bent, throbbing with habit, and the quick children, now shrieking by on sand, staring, averting. I go in over my head in stillness and see behind the body and the barefoot children how on the bent horizon to the west a sudden flowering shaft of sunlight picks out four pale haycocks saddled in sackcloth and makes of them a flared quartet of gospel horses rearing up, heading for us. That's Eamon Grennan's Sea Dog, read there by Billy Collins. I go in over my head in stillness. What a fabulous moment. Yeah, it's, if you could see the poem, and that's one of the drawbacks of not seeing it, is there are one, two, three, four stanzas, and three of the stanzas end in periods. And that's the only stanza. As we, it goes, I go in over my head, then a stanza break, in stillness. So we have to wait for that. It's an enjammed stanza for a reason, because the stillness going in over my head into the water of stillness, so to speak, as the dog went in over its head. Then he sees again, and get had a problem seeing earlier. Trying to take in what I see, I see the bright parchment skin back in the second stanza. Now he has to go in over his head into stillness, the calmness that kind of ushers in this vision, a page out of Revelation. And just that word gospel, I mean, without the word, it wouldn't quite be the same. It wouldn't. I don't think we'd quite get the four horses. I'm not quite sure about the horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, the word sackcloth, of course, has resonances from the New Testament also. So it's as if there's some kind of penance, some penitential aspect to all of this for the death of the dog. Exactly. I mean, it's a very extravagant image in that it takes us back to the the extravagant imagery of Revelation. What's fabulous, though, at that moment is, just as you say that, of course, is the fact that literally in rural Ireland, certainly and perhaps in other parts of the world, part of an old meal bag or a piece of sacking would be put over the top of a haystack uh, to keep the rain off it. So there is a literal aspect to it Interesting. too. I mean, the ending, I think, is a moral reckoning. I forget whose line that is, that in the end, we will all sit down to a banquet of consequences. And here, there is hell to pay. The poem really contains two shockers. One is the sight of the cadaver. 
And he's very careful, like Elizabeth Bishop in The Fish. The job of describing this body um, is taken with some, on with some seriousness. The feet are buttons of bleached wood in a ring of stubble. The skull bonneted, tapered to a call of wrinkles. This is all in a very worked-up language to give you a sense of that actual... And there's no, reason, there's no revulsion here, I don't think, because the gaze is so steady and the descriptive work is taken on uh, with such energy and obligation that there's no revulsion. You mention uh, Bishop, but I would also like to mention Seamus Heaney because, uh, again, this poem published in May 1988, these images of the body with the tightly knotted twist of rope, a frayed noose. These are images that uh, would have been particularly resonant at that moment as falling in with the descriptions of the bog Bog. bodies Mm -hmm. uh, that Seamus Heaney so uh, wonderfully memorialized in some of his poems from the 1970s. Those images are are lurking about well, here there is, uh, maybe to distinguish it somewhat from Heaney, there is this violence. And so if the cadaver, the washed-up corpse of this dog, is the first shock, uh, the second shock is worse because it's a moral shock. It's the killing of this dog. If there's a, a, a noose around the dog, uh, the owner slipped it over his head pushing those soft ears back with familiar fingers. It seems like a a sadistic and callous act. I know it from a distance anyway in in countries in Ireland, for example, that sheepdogs anyway often don't get named because they're working dogs. They don't come in the house. They work. And if you give a dog a name, then you're sentimentally attached to it, especially if you give it a human name like Paul or Billy. If a dog gets uh, to a certain point where they're not contributing, often they're they're too expensive to be fed, so off they go. So a a physical shock and then a kind of moral shock, which I think summons these four horsemen signaling some kind of reckoning. We're all implicated in some way. Somehow, because it's death's head. You know, one of the moves in the poem is to allegory. And we start off with, with typically with Grennan, who has a great eye for botanical and natural detail and ornithological detail. But in uh, as the poem gets toward its ending there, he says, there's nothing more to say. There's nothing more than this sad sack of bones. Death's head here holds its own peace beyond the racket world of feeling and fragrance. Isn't that great? But once he brings death on with a capital D, that would be, I would say, a shift point, you know, leading to the apocalyptic uh, vision at the end, a shift into allegory. The poem is taking on weight. It's gathering speed and moving to a higher level of significance. That's just a long way of saying that we're all implicated. You know, it occurs to me, just as you're uh, describing it there, there's that moment in the prelude when Wordsworth uh, from the little boat that he's in, describes what seems to be a cliff face following him. It seems perfectly natural the way he describes it there. But here the um, the haycocks and their uh, apocalyptic 
leanings, as it were, don't seem forced. No, it's a trick of, he doesn't say they just appeared and uh, out of nowhere. It's a trick of sunlight, as he says. So the, he looks into the horizon, he gets a, a longer view of things. So we cinematically, you might say, we go from this very close shot on the dog's cadaver on the beach to this long a shot of the horizon. Sunlight comes down, hits the haycocks, and that trick of light it turns them into not just a vision pulled out of his pocket, but a legitimately retinal shift or appearance of the, the gospel horsemen, the, all four of them. There happens to be four haycocks, and that's a nice coincidence. Otherwise, it might be the three musketeers or something. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. In the October 11, 2010 issue of The New Yorker, we were delighted to publish your poem, Table Talk, Billy Collins, and uh, you're about to read that for us now. I mentioned... Wordsworth a moment ago, and I couldn't help but be reminded from the title itself of Wordsworth's pal Samuel Taylor Coleridge, whose table talk is justly remembered. Well, like Sea Dog, it's a <laughs> it's a reference that can be now discarded, I think. Table talk. Not long after we had sat down to dinner at a long table in a restaurant in Chicago and were deeply engrossed in the heavy menus, one of us, a bearded man with a colorful tie, asked if anyone had ever considered applying the paradoxes of Zeno to the martyrdom of St. Sebastian. The differences between these two figures were much more striking than the differences between the Cornish hen and the trout almondine I was wavering between, so I looked up and closed my menu. If, the man with the tie continued, if an object moving through space will never reach its destination because it is always limited to cutting the distance to its goal in half, then it turns out that Sebastian did not die from the wounds inflicted by the arrows. The cause of death was fright, at the spectacle of their approach. St. Sebastian, according to Zeno, would have died of a heart attack. I think I'll have the trout, I told the waiter, for it was now my turn to order. But all through the elegant dinner, I kept thinking of the arrows forever nearing the pale 
quivering flesh of St. Sebastian, a fleet of them forever having the tiny distances to his body tied to a post with rope, even after the archers had packed it in and gone home. And I thought of the bullet never reaching the wife of William Burroughs, an apple trembling on her head, the tossed acid never getting to the face of that girl, and the Osmobile never knocking my dog into a ditch. The theories of Zeno floated above the table like thought balloons from the 5th century before Christ. Yet my fork continued to arrive at my mouth, delivering morsels of asparagus and crusted fish. And after we ate and lifted our glasses, we left the restaurant and said goodbye on the street, then walked our separate ways in the world where things do arrive, where people usually get where they are going, where trains pull into the station in a cloud of vapor, where geese land with a splash on the surface of a pond, and the one you love crosses the room and arrives in your arms. And yes, where sharp arrows can pierce a torso, splattering blood on the groin and the feet of the saint, that popular subject of European religious painting. One hagiographer compared him to a hedgehog bristling with quills. Billy Collins reading his poem, Table Talk. Now, I'm struck here by some of the differences between what you're reading, which is the version of the poem that was published in uh, one of your collections, and what I have here, which I think is what was published in the magazine, did I was struck hearing Sea Dog being read. The number of changes, actually, that have taken place in both these poems is really quite phenomenal. What does that reveal, I wonder? Well, what does it reveal? I mean, when do you, I mean don't you think that, uh, I'm going to be slightly mischievous here, now, but don't you think that when the poem is in the New Yorker, that's it? That should be the end of the story? <laughs> it's just the first draft, really. <laughs> For example, uh, you changed uh, the, the word pond that you used there was as it was published in the magazine at Lake when hmm. trains pull into the station, when the train pulls into the station. Hmm. So really, you did go back to the poem yeah. and tweak it. Well, it's a good question you ask. I mean, it speaks to the fact that poems tend to be always fluid to some extent. I mean, maybe I, there might be two or three poems of mine that I think I could sit in a room for you know a long time and wouldn't make a change. Maybe, in fact, it is a world in which things don't quite arrive, <laughs> as, in, as in the Zeno paradox. Right, like the pen uh, always uh, approaching the sheet of paper. I remember there's this period of time before a book is published when you get, uh, well, you get to look at your poems uh, in manuscript before you send the thing out. You get to make changes there if you want. So the arriving tension of actually having a poem in a book, not that having a poem in the New Yorker is no small thing. (laughs) There are opportunities that come up to take a second look or a third look at a poem. Usually there are tweakings on my part. It's what Paul Desmond said uh, in writing a song that he would end up working with tinier and tinier screwdrivers as he made these little changes at the end. I mean, I would say almost always the conceptual run of my poems from A to B to Z or whatever, that stays the same. I I really never go back and kind of change stanzas around or say that I should have taken this turn there. Uh, that's, That's pretty much set. But uh, pond and lake, 
These are sonic uh, musical oral changes, yeah. But if you'd like me to change it back now, <laughs> it's too no. late. But the impulse, I suppose, is to is to get it right. Is that is clean, that it? It's to clean. Yeah. I mean, it was William Matthews who, who said that revision is not cleaning up after the party. Revision is the party. <laughs> uh, you know. I mean, that's the fun. Is is making it better, making it and. Uh, so these, these little adjustments, I think, are potentially endless in a lot of poems. One of the things that I think people love about your poems is the sense that they've been rather gently taken into a world and your tone is so attractive, it's so accommodating. You know, one's taken by, by the elbow, I suppose, by the sleeve and led deliciously into the poem. And I think the you know the reader delights in that because she feels that actually she's along, she's along for the ride, as it were. Uh, well, I like that. Yeah, I like to get the reader in the sidecar, you know, before we take off. And I think that's why I make almost no demands on the reader early in the poem. You know, that poem begins not long after we had sat down to dinner at a long table in a restaurant in Chicago, no one's going to say, well, I don't believe that. So there's a kind of almost time and place coordinates, the kind of thing you get in haiku. You know, there's a season word often. So you often know where you are and when you are. I hope to disorient the reader along the way. And at the end of the poem, particularly perhaps, as we just go into this hagiographer. And I think of disorientation as a literary pleasure, a mild one, but if the reader isn't oriented in the beginning, she can't be disoriented later. You know, one of the things that strikes me there, I wonder what you think of this. I can see an argument for revisiting one of those longs in the first and second lines, not long after we had sat down to dinner at a long table in a restaurant in Chicago. I really only noticed it there as you were um, reading it. Now, in one intellection, that's one long too many. But is it part of the kind of gentle leading into the poem that, in fact, you're able to use these two words in such proximity and give the reader the sense, well, actually, this really is the language of a man talking to to men and women. I'm not in some construct where I should be fearful of such a repetition. Does that make any sense to you at yeah. all? Well, now that I look at it, I mean, the, and the two longs are right on top of each other. There's a kind of lullaby um, effect there. But also it's the idea of, of not using poetic language, just as uh, in the sense that Wordsworth talks about that in the preface to Lyrical Ballads, to use very ordinary language in the beginning. And then the, the language can get more ratcheted up as we go along, and the imagination can start getting off its leash. No longer are we restricted to the potentially claustrophobic dinner where we're just sitting there eating and listening to this guy go on. But the whole Zeno idea of not arrival then gets elaborated. And finally, we return to the real world where we do arrive. And then we come back to St. Sebastian, and then the end of it is just kind of an odd throwaway. One hagiographer compared him to a hedgehog bristling with quills. You know, one of the things that fascinates me in the course of these uh, podcasts is the relationship between 
the poem that you've chosen by the other poet and the poem of your own that you've chosen. And just looking at this, with St. Sebastian tied to a post with rope, the Oldsmobile never knocking my dog into a ditch. You know, as an amateur psychologist, I have to think, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Surely some mistake, as they used to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wonder, is it possible that when you've gone to the trouble of choosing this earlier poem, by Eamon Grennan in this case, that actually subliminally you're then choosing one of your own that actually engages some of uh-huh. the same imagery. I mean, does it not? I feel I should be lying down now <laughs> instead of sitting here across from you. I feel I should be charging you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you very much, Billy Collins, for being with us today and allowing us to hear Table Talk by yourself and then Eamon Grennan's poem, Sea Dog. Both of those actually may be found on newyorker.com. Eamon Grennan's latest book of poems is But the Body, and I'm delighted to say that Billy Collins' 16th collection, The Rain in Portugal, is coming out in October 2016. Billy Collins, thank you very much indeed for being with us today. Pleasure to talk to you. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and in the digital edition for tablets and smartphones, available at no extra charge in the App Store and on Google Play. The theme music is The Pitnacree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.